Thank you. Um, good evening, everybody. It's an honor to be here. It's an honor to be giving the David Rappaport Memorial Lecture. I've been a student and a teacher at Risha for many years, and I know of Dr. Sam and Sandra Rappaport's serious commitment to the goals and future of Drisha. It's also a pleasure to welcome their family, and especially to welcome Mr. Rappaport. Um, I'm really delighted that you've asked me to perform this honor for you. It's always a pleasure to learn with Sandra, to sit on the board with Drisha, of Drisha with her. I remember our conversations many years ago before you wrote the book about the Imahot, and uh, I'm really delighted to be here. I hope our learning tonight will provide an Eloi Nishama for Mr. David Rappaport. So why blood? I've spent the year studying blood, specifically. I've been teaching a year-long course in Hilchot Nida, the laws relating to the menstruating woman. When Judy invited me to give the lecture tonight, my first inclination was to talk about Nida. That's what I do. Judy very quickly mixed that idea. So I thought to myself, we do have a lot of blood-related ritual and symbolism associated with Pesach, so I'll do that. Particularly, what I'm specifically intrigued by and what I want to talk about tonight is the very different valences, the different values attributed to the blood of Pesach, the blood of the Paschal Lamb of the Pesach sacrifice, particularly the one that was brought in Egypt, which is sacrificial, and menstrual blood, which renders a woman tmeah, ritually impure. This difference is captured in a recurrent midrash, which is alluded to in the Haggadah, as well as various other liturgies of our tradition. In the Haggadah, we read a series of verses from Parshat Kitavo, the 26th chapter of, um, of Dvarim, uh, entitled the Mikra Bikurim. This was the liturgy that was recited when one brought one's first fruits, the, the, the first uh, crops of one's harvest to the Mikdash. One would recite a liturgy which was essentially a, um, a, a, a narrative of the history of the Jewish people till that time beginning with our father Jacob, Yaakov going down to Mitzrayim, Shibud Mitzrayim, Galut Mitzrayim, the, um, the, the servitude in Egypt, the exodus from Egypt, and finally God's bringing us to Eretz Yisrael, which brings us full cycle to the moment of the bringing of the Bikurim. The Haggadah provides a type of Midrash on these verses, and whoever has listened to Rabbi Silber talk about the Haggadah, he about this very often, that the, the Seder is an opportunity for Talmud Torah, various types of Torah learning, and the section that begins with the words Seulamad is a type of Midrash. Specifically, what the Haggadah does is it takes the verses from the 26th chapter of Devarim and associates it with other verses. Um, most centrally, the verses from the book of Shemot that deal with the actual experience of Exodus, but there are other psukim thrown in as well. And that's what I want to share with you this evening. The first verse of the section of Tzelomad is Arami Oved Avi, Vayeirid Mitzrayma, Vayagarsham Dimitei Ma'at, Vayisham Legoi Gadol Atsum Varav. My father Jacob was a wandering Aramean. He went down to Egypt and lived there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and large in number. The Haggadah associates one word of this verse, Varav, with two verses from the 16th chapter of Yechezkel. 
which is the first source that you have in front of you. I want to take a look at the general context of these two psukim, then look at these two psukim specifically, and understand what their message is in terms of the pshat and how they've been in- interpreted midrashically. So if you look at your first source, it's actually a rather lengthy chapter in the book of Yechezkel, in which God is speaking to the prophet Ezekiel, the, pro- the prophet um, Yechezkel, and essentially complaining about how Israel has betrayed God. The image that we are presented with here is the image of Israel as an infant. An infant that's been abandoned at birth. God nurtures this infant. God takes this infant, so to speak, under God's wing. And God raises this infant until it is an adolescent girl, and until it has reached puberty. At that point, God marries this young girl. And eventually, along the course of the road, as is a familiar motif in, um, in the prophets, Israel betrays God, which is, which is, um, for which the image of adultery is, is used. Israel worships foreign gods. And at the end of the chapter, God says that despite Israel's betrayal, God remembers the covenant that God had made with, this, with Israel as a very young nation, and God will redeem Israel and will remember Israel nevertheless. So I wanted to take a look at a few of the images that, that, that crop up in these Pesukim. So if we begin with Pasuk Gimel, the, um, the Navi, uh, God says, Marta, God says to the Navi, you shall say, Ko amar Hashem elokim Yerushalayim, so says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your birth, your place of origin is from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Chittite. Now, in this context, what this is supposed to indicate is that Israel is foreign, Israel is rejected. After all, the Canaanites are the rejected nation who lives in the land, who God chases out in order to place in their stead the nation of Israel. So you come of foreign, rejected birth. Not only that, in Pasuk Dalid, When you were born, you were not tended to. Your navel was not cut, you were not washed, you were not salted, something which... God, we've given that up, and you were not swaddled. So presumably all of the normal types of caring that one would provide for a newborn infant were not done for you. (laughs) We're going to be grateful for the air conditioning, though. So if you can't hear me when the air conditioning is on, just indicate. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have mercy upon you, and you were cast out on the field. In your loathsomeness, this is a very, very graphic image, an image that, um, that actually uh, repeats itself. That root, Himal Ayin Laman, repeats itself many times in the curses at the end of the book of Vayikra. You were, you were disgusted on the day that you were born. And now come the two verses that are cited in the, uh, that are, uh, cited in the Haggadah, or in most editions of the Haggadah. God says, And I, God, passed by you when I saw you wallowing in your blood, or bloods. And I said to you, in your bloods live. And I said to you, in your bloods live. And now, 
after we have this image of the infant, the image changes. You grew as a shoot of the field. That's why I placed you. You grew up and you came to possess great ornaments. Your breasts were formed. Your hair grew, yet you were naked and bare. And again, once again, God passes over and sees now this pubescent girl. And I saw it was your time of love. I took you under my wing. I covered your nakedness. And I vowed a vow to you and I entered into a covenant with you. Here, marriage is being seen as a covenant, says the Lord God, and you are mine. Then I washed you in water. I rinsed your bloods from you. And I anointed you with oil. That's, those are the psukim that I want to focus on. Specifically, I want to look at the use of blood imagery here. And we see that blood actually makes two appearances. The first one is, um, is, is more expected than the second one. The first one, of course, is this infant baby... Who the, the, the image that we have is the mother gave birth to this infant and then as soon as the baby literally had left her body she left and didn't even bother cleaning the baby off the baby is, is sitting in the, the blood of the afterbirth what's, what's really fascinating is Pasuk Tet the, the ninth verse here in which once again after we have the image of this baby, this baby girl having, having achieved uh, puberty then now again in Pasuk Tet, God says, I washed you. I washed the blood off of you. What can that mean? So either the verse is, it means the original image and it's somewhat out of order, but I would suggest that there's a possibility here that the blood that we've been introduced to in the, in the earlier verses, where the blood is the afterbirth of the mother, has now become the menses of this young woman who has now achieved puberty and is now ready, at least biologically, to get married. What's my point here? The image is very much one of blood starting off as being an image of abandonment. And when God says, in your blood you shall live, what we have here is a transformative moment. Now, I actually did a survey and looked at various translations of these verses. And the new, I guess it's not so new, JPS, but it's called the new JPS to dissociated from the very, very old JPS translation, translated as despite your blood live. Despite your blood live. In other words, what that translation is focusing on is it's focusing on blood as a complete negative. In other words, the blood, um, the blood is the image of abandonment, of being dirty, of being loathsome. And God is saying, despite the fact that you've been abandoned in this terrible state, nevertheless, you should live. But the more common translation, and really the one I want to go with tonight, is in your blood live. Because what that allows us to do is that allows us to see the transformative possibilities in blood. As if the blood which at, the fir at, at first instance signified abandonedness, loathsomeness, being uncared for, can be transformed into something else. And certainly the, for the Midrash, for the Midrashim that we're going to look at, that is in fact exactly the case. Exactly what's going on here is we have a transformation that is taking place in which blood, which could symbolize something negative and something lowly and something rejected, becomes something sanctified and pure and sacramental. 
So the Midrash that I want to focus on connects this particular chapter and specifically these verses from Yechezkel to the 12th chapter of Shemot. The 12th chapter of Shemot, part of which we, we read last week uh, uh, as, as the Maftir, Parshat HaKodesh, of course talks about the commandment that God gives to Moshe to convey to Israel to take, um, to take a set, to take a lamb, and to offer what looks like some sort of sacrifice, except it's not a, a, entirely a sacrifice since there is no altar, there's no Mizbeach, but instead the, 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 the sheep is to be slaughtered and something perhaps unusual is to be done with the blood. The blood is a very uh, central part of the, of the service of this Paschal Lamb. And I just want to, uh, us to take a look at at least the beginning of chapter 12 and then we'll, we'll talk about it. I want to take this in a few stages. I want to begin by introducing the Midrash, which is on Pasuk Vav, on the sixth verse. In the Hebrew, it's on the first page. In the English, it moves on to the second page. And then we'll talk specifically about what's done with the blood. So after God commands Moshe and Aaron in the land of Egypt, the first commandment is to take on the tenth of the first of the month a set, a lamb. What is one to do with the lamb? So in Pasuk Vav, we're told, you shall guard it until the 14th of this month, so from the 10th to the 14th. And the entire nation, the entire congregation of Israel shall slaughter a lamb in the afternoon. If you turn down to the next source, the Michilta comments on this particular verse. And it shall be, uh, you shall observe it or you shall watch it. The Mechilta, the Tanaitic Midrash Halacha in the book of Shemot here, opens with a question. Why does the Torah have the Jewish people, have the Israelites, take the Pesach four days before the slaughter? Now part, I think, of what is being reflected in that question is, of course, this is not part of the ritual that endures. The Pesach that is taken, the Korban Pesach that is offered in the Mikdash, is taken. We, we don't care when it's taken. It's slaughtered on the 14th. And essentially the, the service of the Korban Pesach takes place on the, on the day of the 14th and, of course, that night, which is, which is the Leil Hasid. So why in Pesach Mitzrayim, why the Pesach that's taken in the land of Egypt, why is it taken four days earlier? So Rabbi Matya says, The verse says, Quoting one of the verses in Yechezkel that we saw, God passes over the infant and God sees, and behold, it was the time of love. Right? It's time for God to marry Israel. God had sworn an oath to Abraham that God would redeem Abraham's children, right? The Brit Ben Haftarim. God tells Abraham that his children will be slaves in, 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 in a foreign land, but then God is going to take them out. So the time for fulfilling the vow has come. This is the part that we hadn't been told about at the Brit Ben Habsar. That 
the Israelites had no mitzvot. They had not essentially done anything to merit this type of miraculous redemption. And now we have a quote again from Yechezkel. Right? Your breasts were formed, your hair was grown, you were fully grown up, but you were naked. Israel was naked of mitzvot. Israel had no merit by which to merit God's, uh, God's salvation. Natan lahem hakadosh baruch hu mitzvot. So God gives Israel two mitzvot. Dam Pesach v'dam milah. The blood of the Pesach, the blood of the Paschal Lamb, and the blood of circumcision. Sheitaskubam kedei sheigalu. So that Israel can fulfill these two commandments, and by fulfilling these commandments, they will merit redemption. Shneemar ve'evor alayich ve'erech mitposesem b'damayich v'gomer v'omer lach b'damayich hayi v'omer lach b'damayich hayi. And now the third pasuk from Yecheskel is brought in. That's exactly what's going on, says the Midrash in this pasuk. Right? That's that's what's being signified here. God passes over and sees you wallowing in your blood, and the blood is transformed. B'damayich hayi, you shall live, you shall be redeemed through blood. The Omer, we have another verse. Gam at bedam b'ritech shilachti asiraich mibor ein mayim boa. Pasuk from Zechariah, where God says, in, in, in your covenantal blood, I have sent out your prisoners from a pit that has no water. So again, this, 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 this notion of redemption from a bad place, from a prison, um, from Egypt, happens through covenantal blood. That's why the verse went out of its way to tell us that the Pesach should be taken four days before its slaughtering. In other words, for Israel to sort of increase its level of merit, for Israel to busy itself with that which God commanded, so that with that, with, 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 with that merit on their side, they would merit redemption. So what's interesting here? So this, again, this is why I chose to translate it as in your blood live. Because exactly what, what the Midrash is telling us here is that blood can be redemptive. This blood is redemptive. What blood? So the Midrash names for us two bloods, right? The blood of the Pesach and the blood of Milah. Now the blood of Milah is the more difficult one and I'm going to save it for the moment. But I want to get to the blood of Pesach. And why specifically the Midrash chooses this motif, chooses these psukim and Yecheskel, and what exactly is the role of blood here? Now, if you recall, in the 12th chapter of Shemoter, you can turn back one page and take a look, that the blood did play a very central role in the Pesach service in Mitzrayim. Right? We're told in Pasuk, Vav, in Pasuk Zayim, what were they to do with the blood? You shall take from the blood and you shall place it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which you shall eat it. And once again, when, when Moshe commands the Zikim, the elders, the same thing happens in, in verse 22 in Pasuk Chafet. Again, they're given detailed descriptions of how they are to um, take a, a hyssop bunch and with that, Put the blood on the doorpost. Put the blood on the lintels and on the doorpost. Now, what does that remind us of? What's that image here of putting the blood on the doorpost? Well, it reminds us of Pesach. That's that's where it is. But what 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 other associations do we have with this? Hmm. In here. Yeah. 
mezuzah. Okay. I mean, certainly. The, mm-hmm. Correct. The 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 blood service that was done on the mizbeach, right? In other words, here we are in Egypt. We have no temple because we're in Egypt. We can't have a temple in Egypt. Um, so what happens? So our home, our homes become become the mizbeach, become the altar, and the sprinkling, the placing of the blood on the frame of the opening of the home in many ways is supposed to is supposed to remind us is supposed to conjure up the image of the way the blood was placed on the mizbeach itself because of course blood is a central rite in the temple service one of the main things that happened with each of the sacrifices is blood was placed on the mizbeach in various ways there are various details about where the blood was placed depending on what type of sacrifice it was whether it was sprinkled or, spl- or splattered or poured which which corner um, at the foundation over the, the the middle line under the middle line there's a tremendous amount of detail about how the blood was to be treated in uh, on the mizbeach yes Okay, I don't mean to remind them of the Mizbeach. I mean, for us, the reader, it conjures up that image. Clearly, they, they didn't have that image. But for us, when we, see, when we see this, and particularly from the view of the Midrash, which is looking back, I think that association is already there. I'll, I'll get to there, okay? I'm go- I, I will get there. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. If they did, we're not informed about it in the text. I mean, I, I was thinking about this a lot as I was writing out. Hmm? I thought that the Bukhara, these families, uh, you know, uh, up to the Torah, so they make uh, the carbon, uh, for the family, and then we Okay. Okay. So, so there's a lot of unknowns here. I mean, the truth of the matter is when I was preparing the lecture, I kept referring to Pesach Mitzrayim as a and as I was going through the psukim, I said, wait a second, why am I calling it a sacrifice? What is there in the text itself that indicates that this was a sacrifice? The only thing that we're told is to take the lamb, to slaughter it, and to place the blood, to place the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel, to eat it, and to eat it you know, roasted and not to leave anything over, which uh, those, those last to carry over. The truth of the matter is, it's hard to tell whether it was some sort of precursor to a sacrifice, whether it was some sort of sacrifice. If it was, we're not told that. And in fact, um, what's most significant, I think, is its transformation into a sacrifice as soon as, we, as soon as we have a mishkan and then later a mikdash. In fact, there are actually quite a number of sort of pseudo-sacrifices that appear in the Torah, which seem to be sacrificial um, to a certain extent, but don't have the full complement. As far as uh, your statement about the firstborn. Again, this is, these, are, these are later readings that are coming in to say that the, the, the choosing of Aaron and his sons and later on the choosing of the tribe of Levi after the sin of the golden calf is an indication of the fact that Levi had originally not been chosen to serve in the temple. And of course, the beginning of the book of Bamidbar makes this point and that Levi came in to replace the firstborns. We don't know whether there was any actual sacrificial order, whether the firstborns did that. We also know that it was very common for people to offer sacrifices. All of the Avot, all of our forefathers offered sacrifices, and certainly peoples all over offered sacrifices. But I do want to stick to the fact that in the text itself, it's really unclear. Unless we assume that slaughtering means sacrificing, which is a possibility. Okay. Um, 
And the point I wanted to bring out is the fact that when we think about blood in terms of the Torah, at least I do and the Kohanim over here do, one of the main things you think about is temple service because blood played an instrumental role in temple service and that's what came to my mind when I saw the blood on the, the, lintels, the lintel and the doorpost that in some sense the home is acting, uh, is acting as an altar. And of course this is a repeated rabbinic motif of our homes are, are in the place of a mikdash. This is something that we, we try to kind of recreate that experience in, 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 in metaphoric ways. This is a little bit more concrete than that. I wanted to look specifically at two particular services that the, that the Chumash describes in terms of the use of blood. And if you take a look, I have both of them here uh, on your sheets. First, we have from Vayikra chapter 16. This is uh, the beginning of Parshat Achremot, the Parsha that... Uh, that follows, that we're told follows the death of Aaron's two children and an entire service that is elaborated here the service that becomes known in the Mishnah the Avodah of Yom HaKippurim okay, the sacrificial order of Yom HaKippurim and I just wanted to point out here some of the peculiarities some of, some of the uniquenesses of this particular sacrificial order as I got through saying normally the blood would be put on the altar and that was the place where blood went blood was sanctified, could only go on the altar, people could not eat blood but in the Avodah of Yom HaKippurim something else was done with the blood as well which is that the blood was also sprinkled towards and over the Aron HaKodesh, the Ark the Ark that contained the Luchot if you take a look we can really select um, any number of Sukkim um, if we look at verses 15 and 16 um, here we're told about the slaughtering of the of the chatat of the people chatat actually by the way most biblical scholars assume that chatat does not literally mean sin offering but it means purification offering that the transformation to, um, to, to atonement for sin happened later on but that the chatat initially was supposed to enact purification and we'll see that's very central to the Yom Kippur service so Aaron would slaughter the, uh, the chatat the goat offering of the people and he brought the blood inside the parochet, inside the separation between the Kodesh and the Kodesh Karashim, the Kodesh Karashim being the place where the Ark is. The And he would perform the same rite that he did with the, with the cow, which was brought as a chatat for the family of Aaron. And he would sprinkle the blood on the kaporet, which was the covering on the Aron and in front of the kapot. Why? So the next pasuk tells us, The point was, Aaron atoned for the Kodesh, for the, for the sanctum, from the impurities of the children of Israel and from their iniquities. So shall be done for the Ol Moed, which dwells among the people. In other words, the biblical understanding of what the Avodah of Yom HaKippurim is essentially is a means of purification. God is dwelling among the people. God is dwelling in a, mish- in a Mishkan, which is among the people. People are human. And human beings sometimes enter the sanctum when they shouldn't. People bring all sorts of impurities into the sanctum. So once a year, at least once a year, Aaron was supposed to go in and repurify 
the sanctuary, the Kodesh, the Mizbeach, and the people themselves. And in fact, post-temple, that's what it becomes. It becomes the, the, the notion of a ritual purification really becomes a moral purification, and it is the day in which we become purified or cleansed of our sins. The reason why I wanted to, to, to bring this here is this is a very dramatic illustration of the fact that blood can purify. That the blood of sacrifices, the purpose of the blood of sacrifices was to purify. And the reason why I want to point that out is at the end when we discuss the blood of childbirth and the blood of midah, the blood of menstruation, exactly the opposite takes place. Which is in that particular case, blood, menstrual bleeding, uterine bleeding, causes impurity, causes pollution and contamination. So I wanted to make the point that blood in, in, in the context of the temple acts as a purification. Blood has another role as well in the temple. We're going to read in two weeks Parshat Sav in which Aharon and his sons are initiated into the priesthood and there's a very elaborate ceremony of initiation and this ceremony of initiation included among other things not just the bringing of sacrifices but once again the sprinkling of blood and again there's a deviation from the norm which is why I brought the case which is that the blood is not only placed on the altar but the blood is placed on Aaron and his sons themselves right if you look at Chavkimel and Chavdalid after the, uh, the second ram, the, the ram of the Miluim, the ram of the initiation ceremony is slaughtered. Blood is placed on, the, on uh, Aaron's uh, right earlobe, on his right thumb, and his right big toe. And the same thing with his sons. And the blood is also placed upon the altar. So there is a parallel being made between the altar, the Mizbeach, which is there for the service of God and Aaron and his sons who in a certain sense are also vessels for God's service but more significantly I think what's going on here is we're seeing blood in its use as initiation okay, as an initiation and a distinction and a separation so let's take this back to Mitzrayim so when the Midrash tells us or when the Pasuk tells us that Israel is to sacrifice a lamb and Israel is to um, perform a rite with the blood of the lamb for us for the reader the associations that are made are the notion of and particularly in this Midrash where we're talking about Israel being in a state where it is essentially unforgiven doesn't, de- doesn't deserve God's salvation how does it get to the point of salvation how does it merit salvation through blood, right? Through bringing the korban. So what the Midrash is saying is something, it's more than just the fact that Israel is obeying a commandment of God. It's this specific ceremony. Because just as later on we will see that blood has the power to purify and blood has the power to make kadosh, to make something sacred and distinct and to initiate, here too Israel is being initiated into nationhood through this specific rite. Let's go to what the blood might have meant in Egypt itself. Now, if you t- turn back, once again, to Shemot chapter 12, which is on page 2. As far as chapter 12 is concerned, what was the purpose of the blood? Why did they put blood on the doorpost and on the lintel? Correct. To separate themselves from the Egyptians. Okay. Well, it's, it's also a little bit ambiguous. We're told in 
verse 12 in Pasuk Yudbet, God is going to pass through the land of Egypt and God is going to smite all of the firstborns of Egypt. But in verse 13 we're told, Hadam lachem leot, the blood shall be for, your, for you for a sign, al habatim asheratem sham, in the homes in which you are. And I shall see the blood, says God, and I will pass over you, and there shall be no, no plague, no smiting, no slaughtering um, when I strike Egypt. Okay, and again, in, the rep- in Moshe's repetition to the elders of Israel, we have the same thing. Now, there's actually a little bit of an ambiguity in the text. Who is the sign, who is the blood in oath for? Who is it a sign for? Sign for God, okay? Right? God sees the blood. Yes? For us, right? Right? So we actually see in the same verse two ideas. One is that it is a sign for God, and one is that it is a sign for us. The truth of the matter is this is not unusual, because the oath, is, as Sandra pointed out, the oath is a signifier of the relationship between God and Israel. Think for a moment of, of various things that are otot in the Torah. What else is an oath? Shabbat is an oath, right? Shabbat is an oath brit, a sign of the covenant, right? So it works both ways. It's a sign for us, it's a sign for God. Anything else? Tefillin, right? Tratam la'ot ayadecha. Also at the end of Parshat Bo, it also is there. And one more? Milah, brit milah, okay? Which is also an oath brit, just as Shabbat is. So a sign can, can, can signal to both parties. It can signal something to both parties. What does it signal? So it does. It signals the distinction here in a very graphic way, the distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. The Israelites who have the blood as a sign on their doorposts, they will be saved. The Egyptians who do not, they will not be saved. They will be, they will be, they will be killed. But the oath itself is not a sign for the Egyptians. It has no meaning to the Egyptians. It has meaning for the Israelites and it has meaning for God. I'll give you another example of this. Um, when God tells Moshe at Har Chorev, right? When God tells Moshe at the burning bush to go and speak to the people of Israel, God gives Moshe three signs, right? He gives him three otot. One is to turn the staff into a snake. One is to uh, stick his hand into his, uh, into his cloak and to take it out and it will become leprous. And the third one is to take water and spill it on the ground and it will turn to blood. Now two of those signs are actually performed both in front of, in front of the elders of Israel, are performed in front of the Israelites, and are also performed in front of Pyro, right? Before Pyro, Moshe also throws down the staff and of course we have Makat Dam, the plague of blood, where the blood, where the, where the water of the Nile and all the water turns to blood. When you look at the verses, you'll see that the word Ot appears when Moshe does the signs for the people, or when God commands Moshe to do the signs for the people, but it does not appear when Moshe does the signs for Paro. The turning of the staff into a snake is called a Mofet, a wonder, something miraculous, something magical. Um, makat Dam is a Makat, not an Ot. So I think that, that, that signals to us very strongly that an oath is something that is a sign between us and God. It is not to be shared. It is something that distinguishes our relationship from, uh, from, from other nations. Okay. Now as we, as we had pointed out before, this blood is not the only oath. In fact, it's not the only um, blood that's an oath. The other oath that I want to talk about this evening is milah, is circumcision. 
why does the Midrash associate tell us that God gave us two, two mitzvot at this time Dam Pesach and Dam Milah the Pesach and circumcision why is circumcision included here is there any indication in the text to tell us that circumcision was part of this whole this whole business so in well there is no there is no command to circumcise this is something that the Midrash is, is reading in but we have a few kind of literary links to circumcision I'll, I'll name a few um, if you, at the end of that chapter I have the verses uh, the 43, 44, 48 you will see that unlike all other mitzvot in which we are never told that a male who is uncircumcised may not perform a commandment when it comes to the Korban Pesach males must be circumcised in order to bring a Pesach okay males have to be circumcised in fact if you own a slave if one owned a slave in, in ancient times that slave had to, be, had to be circumcised if he were to eat from the Pesach that's association number one association number two is in the book of Yehoshua in the book of Joshua chapter 5 which is somewhere uh, page 5 oh, I numbered the pages okay um, in chapter 5 as soon as um, Israel crosses the Jordan River God commands Yehoshua to circumcise the males and the Navi tells us that while the males had been circumcised in Egypt hint hint right it must have perhaps it happened right here that throughout their sojourn in the desert males had not been circumcised and now in fact the people who are remaining who are going to the land of Israel who are the descendants of those who originally left Egypt are not circumcised uh, Yehoshua circumcises them and then in Pasuk Yud in the 10th verse of this chapter immediately afterwards we're told that Israel celebrates the Pesach so one could read this as some sort of chronological link but I think the Midrash uh, properly so sees that perhaps there's a more significant link between the two and to me the real you know the humdinger of all of this is is that we have many prohibitions for which the punishment is karet is excision whatever that means but we only have two positive commandments that if you do not fulfill them the punishment is karet as well and they are not bringing the Pesach and not being and for a male not being circumcised so there is immediately a link between those two and to a very large extent it makes sense because both of these are being presented as covenantal acts so it is really no accident that they're being associated here as well before I point out what is incredibly problematic about all of this um, I want to uh, just continue a little bit further and talk a little bit more about Milah because there's some really fascinating later Midrashim on Dam Milah if you take a look at throughout the Torah at any time that Israel is commanded to circumcise its males whether God speaking to Abraham whether um, the, um, the pasuk that tells us that when a baby boy is eight days old he's circumcised in the chapter about childbirth um, in any single place in which the Torah talks about circumcision there's no mention of blood blood is never mentioned okay <laughs> yes there's going to be blood but blood does not have significance for the text what's significant is really is the basar is the flesh is that the foreskin has to be circumcised the words that, that come up um, which we've already talked about in God's commandment to, to Abraham 
there are two words that come up. One of them, of course, is Brit. We, in fact, call it Brit, covenant, as if it were the only covenant. But one of the words that comes up is Brit, is the, uh, is the Milah is a concrete sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and Abraham's descendants, and God's vow to give Abraham's descendants the land. And the second word that comes up is Ot, a sign, but no mention of blood. Now, in our Milah ceremony, somewhat uh, seen this particular rite. Um, if you think about the brachot that are said at the milah, right, the bracha that the, the Moel says, um, al hamilah, that's it, right? It's, it's a standard formulation of a bracha upon performance of the mitzvah. It's very plain. This is what we're going to do, and you do it. The father says the bracha, lahachniso b'vrito shel Abraham avinu to make the child enter into the covenant of Abraham. Again, the emphasis on the covenant and what the sig- significance of this particular rite is. And there's another bracha that we make, Asher Kidash Yidid Mibeten Vechot Bish'ero Sam, which is a bracha that commemorates the fact that God places this, the sign of his covenant within the flesh of the male child. The only time that we have a reference to the blood in our liturgy of the Brit Milah is the naming of the child, the Kriyat Hashem, in which we say, and everyone says together, right, exactly playing off the same Midrash. And now it makes sense to us because we've seen that connection made, that once again, blood is acting as a redemptive act, it's acting as a sign of a covenant, it's acting as, as an initiation into the congregation in the same way that Israel became a people. So uh, Professor Shai Cohen wrote an article, I think in fact he wrote an entire book about circumcision, and the article which, uh, that I read, he noted that the emphasis on blood of circumcision is a late historical development. That, and in fact he says that within the Mechilta, although the Mechilta says Dam Brit, he argues that the focus is not on the Dam, but rather on, uh, rather on the fulfillment of the covenant. That goes just kind of against everything I've said so far, but okay. Um, he says that really the first appearances of the significance of the blood of circumcision appear in the 8th century. And one of the sources that he points us to is the Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, which scholars understand to be an 8th century source. And we have, I've excerpted for you, two really bizarre and fascinating midrashim. I want to um, look at both of them. Let's take a look at the second one first. So if you look after I have my dot, 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 Rebbe Yomer, Rebbe said. And what we have here is the Midrash, the Pirkei's Rebbe Eliezer, justifying the fact that Israel throughout the generations performed the act of circumcision. Rebbe Yomer, Yitzchak Malat Yaakov Yat Esav, Esav Ma'as, Greek Milak, Shem Shem'as, B'chorah. Yitzchak circumcised both of his sons, Yaakov and Esav, Esav rejected the Brit Milah as he had rejected the birthright. So he just rejects the tradition in its entirety. Jacob adhered to Brit Milah and he circumcised his, his sons and his grandsons. How do we know this? How do we know that Jacob circumcised his male descendants? So uh, the Midrash points to the story of Shechem, where Jacob's sons 
demand that the inhabitants of Shechem circumcise themselves in order for Shechem to marry Dina, and of course they use that as an excuse to go and, and slaughter them. Midrash passes right over that part and says, from here we know that Jacob's sons were circumcised. So all the males in the Israelite family were circumcised until Pharaoh came along and put a stop to it. It's very reminiscent of, of what we read about Antiochus, right, in, in, uh, in uh, the Maccabees, that, that Pharaoh... Um, decreed no Brit Milah and that's when Milah stops. So, so part of what's going on here is an attempt to, to say that it wasn't that Israel rejected Brit Milah. Um, Shai Cohen points out that this is very significant in, the historical, in, in that historical reference where Milah was, 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 was under attack so it was important to note that Israel always kept Milah and the only time they didn't keep Milah was when they were prevented from doing so. So the first opportunity they had upon the exodus from Egypt, the entire na- the, the males of the nation from young to uh, from young to old were all circumcised. mulim hayu, and again we quote from Yehoshua. Now look at this: the hayu Yisrael lochim dam brit milah v'notnim al mashkov batehem dam brit milah v'dam pesach. Look at what happens here. Okay? This is really far out. Israel took the blood of the circumcision and together with the blood of the Paschal Lamb, both bloods were placed on the lintels and on the doorposts. So this Midrash very cleverly plays on the fact that the word Damayich is a plural. Your bloods. Why doesn't it say your blood singular if it's just the Pesach? Because it was two bloods. It was the blood of the Pesach and it was the blood of Milah. Rabbi Eliezer Omer, I'm going to read to the end because I want to refer to this later. Rabbi Eliezer Omer, And why does the verse say Damayich two times? That also seems to be extraneous. El Amar HaKadosh Baruch Hu B'zchut Dam Brit Milah U'b'zchut Dam Pesach Migalu Mimitzrayim U'b'zchut Dam Brit Milah U'b'zchut Dam Pesach Atem Atidim Lihigael B'sof Malchut Rivii L'kach Nehmar Ba'omer Lach B'damai Yichai Why does it say B'damai Yichai twice? Because God will redeem us twice in the merit of these bloods God redeemed us from Egypt and God will eventually redeem us from, from, from Rome from the, the, the current exile so, in this Midrash, we see the blood of the Pesach and the blood of uh, Brit Milah literally intermingling, and this notion of both types of blood acting as an oath really coming together, acting both as a protection and a designation of Israel as distinct from the other nations. We'll get back to the, the later quote in, in, in a second. The, the first part of, the, uh, of this quotation is also very significant and also will help to, to tie up our loose ends here. Below Ode, right, I'm going to the beginning of the Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer that I have excerpted here. Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer claims that Abraham was circumcised on Yom Kippur. Why? Because of a linguistic parallel. 
right? A hekesh. The word etzem in the middle of the day is used both by Yom, the service of Yom, uh, of Yom HaKippurim. One may not do creative labor in the middle of this day. And we're also told that Abraham was circumcised in the middle of the day. Ah, there we go. We don't have a date when Abraham was circumcised. Now we have a date. It's Yom Kippur. Now why is he making this emphasis? On the day of atonement is when Abraham was circumcised. Every year God looks down and God sees the circumcisional blood of Abraham our father and atones for the sins of Israel. Because on this day we are forgiven. Why on this day? Because that's when Abraham was, was circumcised. Now look at this. Abraham was circumcised on Yom HaKippurim, on the Harabayit, right? In that place where Abraham was circumcised, his blood, the blood of the circumcision, again you can see the blood is very significant here, remained there, that's where the altar was built. That's why blood is so important in sacrifice. Because the blood conjures up the image of the circumcisional blood of Abraham. And just to complete the circle, we now go back to Yechezkel. So what we see now is, 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 is a three-way connection between blood of circumcision, blood of sacrifice, and blood that is used for the Pesach to act as a redeemer of Israel from Egypt. Now, everything would be great if I could end here. But we have a problem. And it's my job to make problems. That's, that's what I do here. Um, how, can I, how can I talk about circumcision and talk about circumcision of males and pretend that 50% of the population doesn't exist, isn't in, in Israel? That, that, would, that would really not be possible for me to do that. So what do we do about this problem? Well, those who know me know that the first thing I'm going to do is make the problem much bigger. Okay? So I'm going to make the problem bigger. And I want to go back to that line I said we would go back to in Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer. That end over there where it says that God redeemed, that, that we were redeemed because of the blood of the Pesach and the blood of circumcision and we will be redeemed. Right? Just to read the, the language just so we get the, the resonance. Bizchut dam brit milau, bizchut dam pesach migalum in Mitzrayim, ubizchut dam brit milau, bizchut dam pesach atem atidim lehigael. So, what does that sound like? So, we have a Gemara in Sotah, Daf Yud Aleph Amud Bet, 11b, where we're told, Bizchar nashim tzidkaniot, shahayu boto hador nigalu Yisrael in Mitzrayim. It's one way of saying it. The other way of saying it is, "Bizchud nashim tzidkaniot migalu avotenu mimitzrayim uvizchud nashim tzidkaniot atidin lihigael." The same exact resonance, right? It's the same exact sound. It's the same thing, except it's a complete inversion, right? What's happened is, is the statement that, at least I'm more familiar. Graduation speech, right? This statement that, that has been told to women for generations and generations that it was in the merit of righteous women, usually understood as the, the midwives, 
Israel was redeemed from Egypt and in the same vein Israel will eventually be redeemed from its, its current exile has now become in the merit of the blood of Pesach and the blood of circumcision. The blood of circumcision certainly being male and the truth of the matter is there is a as to whether women were commanded to bring the Pesach all together. So we have completely taken women out of the picture. But the problem is actually much larger than that. Because I've spent this entire time discussing blood is purifier, blood is initiator, blood is sacred, blood is covenantal, blood is sacrificial, all these incredibly wonderful associations with blood. We have to sort of forget about the bloody part of the blood to go with this. Um, and in truth, that's, that's true. In the Torah, that is, blood is life, right? Ki hadam hu right? We're told not to eat blood because the spirit, life resides in blood. That's why that's why murder is such a horrible violent, uh, violation because it's taking away life blood is life blood is all these incredibly positive qualities except blood that's uniquely female which causes tumah right and this is, this is the connection to what I'm, I'm learning about and teaching this year whether you look in chapter 15 of Vayikra in which the uterine bleeding of the menstruating woman and the more abnormal uterine bleeding creates tumah, whether it's in chapter 12 of Vayikra, the blood of childbirth, which I have for you here, but I won't go into. In both of these cases, a woman who experiences uterine bleeding becomes tmeah, becomes ritually defiled. She may not enter the Kodesh, she may, not, she may not enter the, the sanctuary. She might, may not eat of sanctified foods. She can transmit this impurity to others. What is going on? So I want to make two points here. And I want to look at the last two sources here. You have to bear in mind that the, the science we're about to encounter is, is the best science of, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago or a little bit less, perhaps. I'm going to, uh, we're going to look at two Gemarot in Masechet Nida, in which the image of menstrual blood has a very different valence. The first is a Brita brought down in Nida 31a. Tanu Rabbanan, our rabbis taught in a Brita, Shlosha Shutafin Yesh Ba'adam, HaKadosh Baruch Hu there are three partners in the creation of a human being. God, the father, and the mother. Aviv mazria halobe. Shemimenu atzamot v'gidim b'tziparnayim l'moach sheberosho v'luban shebaayim. The father provides the white material, right? Semen is white to clear. And from this are created bones, sinews, nails, uh, the brain, and the whites of the eye. Basically, white things. Okay, that was the association. Imo mazrat odem. The woman provides the red. Shemimenu or ubasar usarot v'shachor shabayin, from which is created the skin, the flesh, hair, and the black of the eye. V'akadosh baruchu notein baruchu neshama v'klaster panim uriyat ayin u'shmiyat ozen v'dibor peh v'hilucharaglayim u'binavaskel. And God provides everything that's more, um, less concrete, uh, breath appearance, the ability to see and hear and speak and go and understanding. So among uh, many of the, the Greeks had the view, they, they didn't know about 
eggs, that the egg got fertilized by the sperm. And in fact, they thought that it was menstrual blood, that the woman contributed this menstrual blood, which instead of uh, being expelled from the woman's body, instead transformed in and helped the creation of the human being. So the image that I think the rabbis are picking up on here, and, and the reason why I want to use it, is to, is to point out that even within rabbinic notions of menstrual blood, there is the capacity to give life, the capacity to produce life, when it, the blood is not being menstruated, when it, when it, when it participates in the formation of, 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 of a fetus, then it is life-giving. Not only that, we have another very fascinating idea, uh, the final source. Um, the rabbi's understanding of where mother's milk comes from, the mother's milk is, is menstrual blood transformed. Okay, now again, these are ancient understandings of things that they really did not have the capacity to understand in the same way that we can. But the message, I think, is, is, is an interesting one, which is, again, to play off of that capacity to both create life and to signify defilement um, in the same time. Now, this is a very, very common explanation of Hilchot Nidah, of the laws of Nidah. You know, from Ramban, from Nachmanides to Rachel Adler in an article which she later recanted. In her first article in 1973, Rachel Adler, as Nachmanides before her, I told my students I was going to use the two names in the same sentence. They, they really enjoyed that. Um, Jacob Milgram, who's a biblical scholar, all want to understand the, the, the Tum'ah of Nidah as the loss of potential life. This is given in pretty much every Kala class in the universe that Nida is because of the loss of potential life, that each month that a woman menstruates, she could have created life, but instead she did not, and Nida is the mourning of that loss of life, and, it's, um, and it, 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 it results in impurity in the same way that the highest level of impurity is Tumat Meit, right? Is, is contact with, or, uh, contact with a, a dead body, so that becomes the um, that becomes the sort of the paradigm of Tumah, and then they sort of insert Nida into this picture. Now I've never been a big fan of this theory because I think it, it leaves a lot of things out. Um, just to say uh, one thing that it leaves out is Nida is not simply a form of Tumah, a form of impurity. If you look at chapters 18 and 20 of Vayikra. Nida, and the reason why it really has resonance today is because Nida is also in Erva. It's a forbidden sexual relationship. None of these explanations can, come, uh, can, can give any explanation why this is so. We don't know, right? We have no explanation for why this is so. So I find this to be, you know, one of, one, uh, a, a very significant hole in this particular theory. The only real distinction that I can make, and it's more descriptive than anything else, is that what distinguishes uterine bleeding from these other, uh, the, the blood that, the, the other bloods that we talked about, is that um, in chapter 15, uh, chapter 15 of Vayikra, uterine bleeding is, um, is categorized with other um, genital forms of impurity. Um, in Vayikra, in the, the 15th chapter of Vayikra, it's actually very, even Stephen, males have two forms of impurity that, that comes from genital emissions. Women have two forms of impurity that come from genital emissions. And the general overall category of tuma has to do with things that are expelled from the genitals. Um, 
again, uh, I think that's a d descriptive distinction between this type of bleeding and the other types of bleeding, but it doesn't really answer the question. And in fact, I'm going to leave it as a problem. I do want to go back, however, and, and, and end with this, the, with this thought. If we go back to the very first source, the verses from Yechezkel with which we began. Remember, I, I pointed out that the image of blood really appeared two times. One was the afterbirth in which the infant is lying, and the second image in Pasuktet is the transformation of this blood to at least what appears to me, and I saw a few head nods, um, some, some people in the audience, what appears to be uh, the blood of, of, of menses. And if we think about it in terms of the, in terms of this metaphor that we've been looking at of the blood as having the power of salvation, blood as having redemptive power, what I would offer to you is, is in the same way that we are told in the Haggadah, the whole Dorbador, Chayavadam, we wrote it that smoke that our commandment the night of Pesach is not simply to to narrate the story of ex, uh, of the Exodus but to actually relive the story of Exodus. Maybe one of the ways to understand that is we also have the power and the requirement not just to be redeemed but to participate in the act of redemption. to fix the world to redeem the world. And there are some things that still need redemption. And I would offer for you, Nida is one of them. Thank you. <laughs> if anyone has any questions or comments or objections, I'm happy to what hear are you them. Giving part two? <laughs> I don't have part two yet. Yes. In the back. Ah, I forgot Tipora, right? <laughs> Correct. I, I forgot to mention that the only time where we... Yeah, the question was, is what about the Tipora story when Tipora circumcises her son? And in fact, that is... Uh, I meant to mention it, but I forgot. That is the only mention of blood associated with Mila in the Torah. When Tipora circumcises her son and she says... Chatan damim atali, right? You, we're not sure who the you is. You are chatan damim. You are the groom. You are the blood, blood, bridegroom of blood, right? Chatan damim lamulot, the blood brought, the bridegroom of circumcision, right? And and all the mafarshim sort of search around. Is she talking about Moshe? Is she talking about the baby? And in fact, that actually is. And the whole story is incredibly cryptic. But it is a story that happens right before they go down to Egypt. And of course, you're right. The heroine of the story is Tzipora, right? It's Tzipora who performs the circumcision. And interestingly, later on in discussions about whether a woman can perform the mitzvah of milah, which is uh, an issue in the halakha, the, the counter evidence that's brought always is the fact that Tzipora circumcised her son. So, so you are correct. That, that, that should be part of the discussion. Um, it's a very cryptic story. I don't really have anything to say about it right now. Thank you. Yeah. Someone else had a hand up? Is that you? Okay. 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, very good. Um, the comment was that the the pasuk from Yecheskel, uh verse nine, um, in which I associated that with menstrual blood, the image here is of removing the blood, not of using it in any sort of positive way. So it it contributes to to the problem. And I agree. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. An association between Rachamim and Pesach itself. Mm-hmm. Right, the Midrash associates God having Rachmanut, God having mercy with Pesach, so what this gentleman is offering is that the two words are actually associated in, in Arabic. Of the word of the root Pesach, correct, which is very not clear. Yeah. Right. That's very cool. Okay, thank you. So um, the comment there was is that um, a common motif in describing the exodus from Egypt is the image of birth, and that perhaps the blood on the doorpost, in in a certain sense, is really um, is is really symbolizing the blood of birth. And the comment that was added is. Um, there's a, a book on uh, on Masechet uh, Nida written by Charlotte von Robert, who's a Talmudic scholar, in which she describes she notices that the imagery in the Mishnah of Masechet Nida, uh, the imagery for a woman's body, is very house related. Um, it's about inner inner rooms and outer rooms and hallways. It's it's all very much that sense. So perhaps this image of blood on the doorway is essentially describing kind of. The, the baby actually emerging from the birth canal along with the accompaniments of blood. That's very nice. Sense. Oh, okay. Well, that's a little bit yeah. Yeah. Uh, the portal of life. Okay. And going to have to say that bat and bayit okay. are often uh, interconnected in the Torah. Okay. The Great. Torah. Great. Great. Although, uh, before I take two more, I just want to, I have to make it into a problem. Which is that, at the same time, the Midrash that's putting Mila there is really subverting that image in a very real way. No, I'm getting an objection. Okay, let me hear. Okay, please. Mm-hmm. 
All right, you got your three partners. <laughs> okay, Yashikawa. Very good, very good. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Correct, 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 correct. Correct. Yes. One more. Yeah. You have to speak up a little bit. You're competing with your Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Correct. Correct. Mm-hmm. Right. That's that's uh, that's an excellent point. That when you look at the the verses in Yechezkel, it's an infant baby girl been born from a mother. All the blood imagery here is female. It's all female, right? And the Damai Chayi is about the female blood. And in the Midrash, when it becomes Damila, we have again that mixing, subversion, intermingling, whichever particular uh, descriptor you know uh, you choose. Yeah, and I guess. God forbid. <laughs> um, I, I, I think I have, I have to end with that line. That's the closing line. Okay. <laughs>